Hey loves, I'm Constance DeGroat of First Generation Healers. Today we'll be talking to my coach, Celtic Cherokee, about the origins of Halloween and her path as a pagan. Celtic is a high priestess and a shamanic practitioner with 20 plus years of experience. She's a spiritual mentor. She works with women on spiritual reconditioning, such as if you're going from Christianity to finding your own path. She helps you heal through the trauma around the religious conditioning. She's certified in cognitive behavioral therapy and currently getting certified in neurolinguistic processing. Celtic is amazing, and I can't wait for you to hear more about her journey. So let's get right to it. Growing up in a religious family, what was Halloween like? Halloween was kind of different in my house. We were fundamentalist Baptist, which is really strict Baptist. Technically, they don't believe in celebrating Halloween at all. It's one of those sects of church that thinks we should boycott Halloween. But my mom, being the strict one, it was kind of odd because she did still celebrate Halloween in some ways. If it looked like witchcraft, if we wanted to dress as a witch or anything, we weren't allowed to do that. But we did trick or treat. We usually watched horror movies. Like she was really a horror movie fan. That's about it. The church that I grew up in, most did not celebrate Halloween. And she did kind of hide that part from the church, which I always thought was strange because she was really strict about religion, but it was like the one rule she would break. But as a general rule, most of the children that I grew up with because I went to a Christian school within that church for a while. They didn't celebrate Halloween at all. They didn't trick-or-treat, didn't dress up. It just didn't exist to most of them. It's really kind of strange to see the dynamics within churches around Halloween because so many believe in boycotting it, but then others are like, what's an innocent holiday? What's the big deal? What sparked your interest in the origins of Halloween? I've always been a history nerd from as far back as I could remember, like where things come from, why we do things the way we do. That's always fascinated me. And then I think the taboo within the church just kind of like added fuel to the fire. Why is it they're so against Halloween? Because I always questioned the religion. So then when it was like, we boycott Halloween, it just kind of made me want to learn about it more. Of course, this was during a time with no Google. You know, I lived in a really small town with very limited library resources. And so I would just read anything I could get my hands on. And I was really blessed with my spiritual path and learning about the origins of Halloween and different pagan holidays, that there was a librarian who would order me books and then kind of sneak them to me. And I would read them and then give them back to her. In all honesty, I think the rebellious side of me kind of kicked in a little bit. Like, why are you so against this? And then once I started reading about the origins of Halloween, it led to the deities and then so on into my pagan path that I follow now. That's really cool. So it's Halloween that started it all for you. It really is because even watching my own mother struggle with, well, this part of Halloween is wrong, but it's okay to do this. It really just made me want to learn more. And where does Halloween come from? It's a modern tradition what we call Halloween, originates from the ancient Celtic festival of, it's different versions of Samhain. And a lot of people look at it, and of course we spell the word like Samhain, and in a lot of horror movies it's pronounced Samhain, but it's actually Samhain because it's a Celtic word. It was a time when people would like these huge bonfires and wear costumes to ward off the spirits of the dead. To them, it was considered the official end of summer. So it was the final harvest of the year, and it was their time to prepare for the long, cold, and dark winter nights ahead. But in the 8th century, the Catholic Church designated November 1st as a time to honor all saints. And a lot of Catholics still celebrate that. Soon after that, All Saints Day began incorporating the traditional elements of the Celts and their festival of Samhain. So the night before All Saints Day became All Hallows 
Christmas Eve. And then over time, it just kind of morphed into the modern day Halloween. So over time, it evolved into, you know, trick-or-treating, carving the jack-o'-lanterns, wearing the costumes. Like a lot of the holidays we have now, it's lost its true meaning, and it's actually become the second largest commercial holiday in the United States. What is the mythology behind Halloween? Mythology around Samhain revolves around honoring the dead, which I guess is probably pretty obvious with most of the modern traditions still. It's a time when the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead is at its thinnest which means that it's easier to communicate or even see the dead. It's really widely believed that it's the one night of the year that the dead can roam the earth. A lot of cultures all over the world believe that. And this is where the traditions of carving the jack-o'-lantern, wearing costumes, and leaving food out came from. Because originally in Scotland and Ireland, they would carve turnips the way that we've carved pumpkins. There's different stories around the tradition as to why, but many believe it was a way to light the path for the spirits who were roaming the earth on that night. I myself light a jack-o'-lantern and place a candle in my window or some kind of small light to light the way of my loved ones so that I can honor them with a dumb supper. Other myths claim that they carved scary faces into the turnips and then now the pumpkins as a way to scare away any spirits that might play tricks or mean us harm. It kind of varies, and honestly, most of the time, it's a combination of the two when you find you're going through mythology. Costumes originated during this time because they were worn so that the spirits who were roaming the earth wouldn't recognize you if you had to leave your home at night. As the holiday progressed and became a more Christianized version of the holiday, people often wouldn't leave their home at night because of the spirits that walked the earth. So if you did, you wore a costume, which again was a myth of scaring away spirits who might want to play tricks on you. They were mischievous or even ones that might mean you harm. The turnips that you mentioned, I've actually seen them online. They're actually really creepy. They are. They're more creepy than a pumpkin. I've considered seeing if I could find one this year and seeing what it was like to carve it because I'm all about honoring tradition. It would be really interesting to me to see how that worked versus a pumpkin. I've not had any luck in finding one big enough yet. Oh, that'd be really cool. I think they're really scary looking compared to the pumpkins. They definitely are. How can we honor our ancestors now? So really good ways to honor your ancestors now. First, I'm very big on doing what feels right, whether it's religion or work or personalized. You know, we tend to overcomplicate and overthink it. Really good ways to honor our ancestors, especially if you want a traditional way, as pagans call the dumb supper. There's other names for it, but that's kind of the most common name. And basically, when you fix your dinner on Halloween, you will leave a plate for your loved ones who have passed on. So you set your table or oftentimes when I've had really small apartments, I will set the plate outside. So I'll make like a small plate of the food that we ate and set it outside. It harkens back to the tradition of, you know, you would light their way with the jack-o'-lanterns and then you would leave them the food. I mean, if it was the one night a year I could roam the earth, I'd want a cheeseburger too. <laughs> so it was a really good way of honoring the dead, kind of like leaving an offering almost. It's showing your reverence and your remembrance, like you haven't forgotten your ancestors. A lot of pagans create what we call a ancestor tree. Um, I've seen it made many different ways. Like some people just put pictures up on the wall or they create an altar and they will put photos of their loved ones that have passed on this altar and light candles for the night. They'll often place like, for instance, if your grandma has passed and she liked white roses, you would essentially leave a picture on this altar, which can be a table. It can be a counter. It can be anything. You said her picture there, light a candle and leave her some white roses. A lot of times it's just the really simple things. You know, what did they like? What were their favorite things? 
if your grandmother was standing here today, what would she tell you to put on the altars? Another really good way, which harkens back to the old days of the bonfire, is they would just sit around and tell stories about their ancestors. You know, like how funny Uncle Bob was at the barbecue. You know, how great your grandpa was at working on cars. They would just sit around and share stories and laugh. And that is actually where our modern day tradition of telling ghost stories come from on Halloween, sitting around a campfire was back then it was a way of remembrance. And today we use it as a way to scare people. I personally create an altar and put up pictures. If you don't have a picture, I've seen some people, they'll write the name of their ancestor and leave it on the altar or just leave their favorite things on the altar and light a candle. Very similar to Catholic churches where you go in and you, you light a candle, you say a prayer for your ancestors, and then you leave. My best advice is do what feels right. If you want to create an altar, I've seen people put like the fishing nets on their wall and paperclip or clothespin pictures on it and little trinkets. So it's kind of like when you go decorate a gravestone to honor someone who's passed, except you're doing it in your home on a specific night. It's just so interesting because then you look at like Day of the Dead also, and it, it sounds so similar. It really is. And the Mexican culture of Day of the Dead is a really good example of truly remembering and honoring your ancestors because the Celtic, it does differ in some ways, like Day of the Dead. They kind of believe that if you don't continually remember your ancestors as the years go on. And if you're not passing on the stories, it's harder for them to come visit you or roam the earth or communicate with the living because they've been forgotten. The Celts didn't follow that quite as strictly, but it is very similar. And the Day of the Dead is huge celebration. And if you've never actually seen some of the celebrations, there's a lot of them on YouTube. And the costumes even kind of come into play there because they paint their faces and it's just, it is such a rich culture and way of celebrating the dead. And it falls on November 1st, which, you know, was the Catholic incorporation of Samhain. Yeah, it's just, it's really interesting in different parts of the world and that's happening around the same time. It really is. And that's one thing that I've said a lot over the years growing up so strictly Christian. One of my questions was always, if these practices are wrong, and we should boycott Halloween. Why do so many cultures have histories with the same holidays before they could even speak to each other? You know, they didn't have the internet or phones 2,000 years ago. There has to be some truth in it somewhere if so many cultures celebrated it all over the world. I agree with you. And it's so interesting to look at the U.S. and you see these different cultures and we look at death very differently, like we avoid it. And yet you see in these cultures, they're embracing death because it's part of life and dying is also part of it. Like people are dying in their homes in other countries, yet here we have like hospice, we're hiding it. Very much. And even the Japanese are a really good example also of honoring the dead. It's very rich culture too. I've watched some shows recently about that. They very much believe, of course, in taking care of your loved ones in your own home until the day that they die, instead of putting them in a nursing home. It's, again, that common theme of remembering people who have passed on. Many, many pagans believe that we gain strength from our ancestors. Witches even will believe that we get a lot of our power and magic from our ancestors. So the stronger connection you have with them, the more power and wisdom you can gain. The way that we look at it in the United States 
is very drastically different than the rest of the world. I think it's something that we need to start trying to go back to. I feel it's very important to remember our history and our ancestors and because we learn from them. I feel like you answered this already, but I just want to make sure if there's anything else you wanted to add. What was the original intention behind the celebration of Samhain? The ancient Celts, Celtic celebrations were all about, obviously, like I mentioned, honoring the dead and the final harvest. So the day marked the end of summer. For them, November 1st was the new year. So they believed that the spirits could come into our world and not just communicate, but cause trouble. Like if you think of mischievous, like Loki, that kind of thing. They also believed that an angry spirit could damage crops. They believed that the presence of these spirits on this night made it easier for the Druids, who were the Celtic priests, to make predictions about the future. These prophecies were a source of comfort during the really long, dark winter nights to kind of soften the struggle and make it until spring. So, you know, we think about, we have electricity and things now. It's easy to stay warm, but for them it wasn't. So they had to have some kind of inspiration and hope to hold on to. So the Druids would make these prophecies that came from the ancestors. So divination, along with honoring the dead, was a huge importance, of huge importance at this time. Think about it kind of like our New Year's Eve and how we make resolutions about the coming year because it gives us something to kind of hold on to and be like, this year's going to be great because I'm going to quit smoking or I'm going to start a business. So during this time, they would like these like huge sacred bonfires where people would gather to burn crops and animals to the Celtic deities. And during this time, they would often wear costumes consisting of animal skins and bones. Now, when I say that they burn crops and animals, I want to kind of clarify that just a little bit, because it's one of the big misconceptions around the holiday. The old world had many cultures that did believe in sacrifice. Honestly, so did Christianity at one time. But it wasn't always the way that we see the word now. We see you know, sacrifice and we're like, oh, they're killing innocent animals and people for no reason. It was also a means of survival. So even farmers today in our modern times use fall. So this time of the year to send the weaker part of the cattle, like the weaker of the herd to slaughter, which in turn will feed his family for the winter or even your family for the winter. The difference is just that the ancient Celts made a necessary task, a ritual to honor the gods and thanking them for a bountiful harvest and that their herd of cattle were healthy for the year. So everything in the ancient world was about honoring and respecting the ancestors and the gods for what they had been given. Essentially, they were following the same thing we do now in farming. It's just that now we kind of sacrifice and things are taboo because of the Christianization of everything. Everything in the ancient world was about honoring and respecting the ancestors. Is there anything different you want to add in for how it was celebrated before versus now? I feel like we've just kind of forgotten the origins of the traditions because everything now has become so commercialized. And I think if people really understood where things came from, we wouldn't have so much of the fighting over, well, Halloween is bad or Halloween is good, or it's kind of become about pranks and toilet paper in people's houses and receiving candy instead of giving back and honoring people. I didn't think about that, that we're not giving. Right. Yeah, it's kind of become like, take, 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 give me candy, give me candy, give me candy, which is, which is great. I mean, I did it as a kid too, and my kids trick or treat, but I feel like it's really unbalanced, especially in the United States as is in general, you know, instead of respecting the people who are giving you the candy or, you know, the gods or whatever, whoever you worship, it's really just about give me all that all that you can give me all that I want. I did that as a kid too. I was wondering for Samhain, is there anything 
You said it's like New Year's. That is your goal right now? I, I celebrate the traditional New Year like we do in, in most parts of the world because most of my family does. But to me, the New Year is Sawins. I will have a ritual on that night. And again, we overcomplicate things. I have a really small apartment, so I can't light a big bonfire. But, you know, I'll light a candle and set up an altar at my intentions for the year. So usually I take a part of the night and I have this tradition of sweeping my apartment back to front to sweep out everything old from the previous year, which right now, who doesn't want to get rid of everything you can from 2020? <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that one this year. But it's essentially sweeping all of the negative energy from the previous year and then setting your intentions for the new year. So whether that's, you know, finances, a new promotion, or just happiness, that you be healthy. To me, it's all about setting intentions. And then I will take a piece of that and honor my ancestors. And I will also leave a dumb supper out that night. I like that with the broom. I have to try that. I really like that one. It really, it feels really good. And what do we still practice from Samhain? I know you mentioned some things also for that. Many elements of Samhain actually still do exist. You know, we dress up in the costumes and we carve the jack-o'-lantern. Many people will take that part of that night and sit around and share ghost stories with each other. Many people, especially in rural areas like where I grew up, will have parties with massive bonfires. Again, it's just, you know, they don't really know where the origins of that come from. But there are a lot of elements that we still celebrate. We've just put a slightly different spin on it so it doesn't seem so pagan or heathen. Candy is a fairly new tradition. It started in like the 20s. But yeah, the costumes, the jack-o'-lanterns, we still practice today. Do you teach your kids about the history of Halloween? I do, because I feel like it is extremely important to pass down the history, whether it's about a pagan holiday, about your ancestors, or, you know, like World War II. I think it's extremely important to keep passing history down because there's so much that we can learn from it. And I also share it with them because I very much raise my children to choose their own path. I try not to influence them one way or the other. I give them the facts about Christianity. I'll give them the facts about my own religion, the history of pagan holidays like Samhain. You know, when they dress up in costumes, I'll tell them where it comes from, especially if they have questions. If they have questions, I just answer them. because I don't feel like we should hide those things. Knowledge is power. And I think giving them the knowledge helps them to be able to choose their path later in life instead of being like, well, the only thing I learned was some specific religion. So I have to continue to be that even if they're not happy. So I feel like they deserve the knowledge and then they too can pass that history on to their children as well. I love that you're raising open-minded kids. That's very important to me considering the, the very strict upbringing I had. Well, it gives them that ability to choose what's going to make them happy to believe in. I, and I feel like when you create the open-minded around religion, then they are much more open-minded and want to learn about other things in life as well. Do you have any advice for parents on how to teach their kids about Samhain? I would say just give them the facts. Celebrate how you want to celebrate. You know, we lead by example most of the time. If you're pagan and you set up an altar, let them see you do that. You don't have to force them to be involved. As the adult, you can let them see your practice. And then if they're interested and ask you questions, just be honest. Like if you were teaching them math or English, you give them the facts, answer any questions, and then let them choose from there. And how can we celebrate Samhain today? The biggest part of it that where we should start 
is taking, we need to look to these other cultures. Like we were talking about the day of the dead, start by remembering our own ancestors. You know, you don't have to go a hundred years back and think, well, I need to honor so-and-so from, I don't know, 1732 in my family. You know, you can start with recently passed loved ones because it does kind of help in your grieving process as well, because you feel like they're being remembered. It starts with you. It starts in your own home. Starting that tradition of honoring the ancestors, I think would be a really good way to start incorporating Samhain into your household. We all love trick-or-treating. Like I said before, I've done it myself. My kids do it. I would just kind of try to balance that with, we do this, but you know, then later we should also thank, you know, whatever God you worship, leave some candy out instead of a dumb supper. If you don't want to carve a jack-o'-lantern, go buy one that's already pre-carved and put a light in it. Stick a candle in your window. Like really good ones are the Christmas <laughs> candles that you can set in your window that are plastic because we all don't want to burn candles and burn house down. You can use those at Halloween, you know, and it's a really good way to light the path for your ancestors. You know, we're not all going to be able to go out and set a bonfire. I think finding your own path, which your ancestors can help you with, is a really good place to start. When you talk about the dumb supper, all I can think about is like Santa and leaving him cookies and milk. <laughs> it, I mean, it is kind of similar because, you know, essentially we're making food for someone who's not really going to eat it. And I get that question a lot. Like, what do you do with the food afterwards? So, you know, you fix, let's say you fix a roast that night with potatoes and you cut a little off, and give some potatoes and a little candy, you know, and you leave it for your ancestors. You can leave it indoors or outdoors, whatever works for you. But I get asked a lot, what do you do with it afterwards? My advice and what I have followed for years is most foods that we make, there are plenty of animals in the world who will eat it later. Because essentially what your ancestors are getting from that is they're not getting the nutrition that we would get like by physically eating it. They're intaking the energy from that. Because I know we've all heard things like it was cooked with love. You know, the energy you put into it is what they're taking back out. And the fact that you remembered them. So then you can turn around and leave it for the birds, uh, leave it for the stray cat that's in the neighborhood. It's really interesting teaching kids about that one because they're like, we're not supposed to waste food or who is that for? And I have found after raising five kids that each of them always find that part interesting to learn about. That's really fun. It is really fun because there's a tradition where people make soul cakes. Essentially what that is, is it harkens back to a time when during the parades, the Catholic church would have around Halloween and All Saints Day, you know, like you see parades now and they throw out candy. Well, back then the beggars would come because that was a really good time to beg for food. And so people would make soul cakes and hand them out to the beggars. And so people now will often make soul cakes in their own house to give to their family. That's so cool. Was it hard for you to believe in the beginning when you were doing it that there was, you know, someone actually receiving this? Did you feel weird? I didn't feel weird, but I think it's because part of it was because I was raised Christian. And of course, we believe in a, in a God you can't see. I was raised with that ability to kind of easily believe in the thing you couldn't see. You know, you can't see the wind you know, the love that someone gives you. That part, I think, did help me as I moved into a more pagan. It also helped that from a very young age, I was clairvoyant. That connection with seeing spirits was just always there. That part wasn't too difficult for me, but I do hear other people talk about that being difficult because again, we're kind of conditioned to believe the thing you can, the tangible thing, the thing you can touch, the thing you can see. What was it like being clairvoyant in a religious household? Like explain that to your parents. 
it was really interesting in my house because most of the women on my mom's side of the family had some form of psychic ability. My grandmother had many of the same abilities I do. Prophetic dreams, premonitions. She was clairvoyant. Very strict religion runs deep in my mom's side of the family. My great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My mom comes from the Puritans who came over and settled America. Like It runs very deep. It was often hidden going all the way back as far as I could research, those psychic abilities were hidden. You know, you did things, but instead of saying, saying the name of a God like Odin or Zeus, you just said Jesus in place of it. And so it's just something you weren't supposed to talk about because how could you really have that ability? My mom did have some of the ability, but she suppressed it over the years. So she was not a good source of someone to talk to about it. So I kind of just had to learn on my own. And it was scary as a small child, but eventually I just became used to it and found my own way through it. How did the Christian church repurpose the pagan practices and beliefs? This can be around Stalin, it can be Yule, it could be anything. Using Stalin as the example, around 43 AD when the Roman Empire kind of ruled the world, they conquered most of the Celtic territories, which was Ireland, Scotland, Britain, and parts of France. And in the course of their 400-year rule, they combined two of their festivals with the Celtic celebrations. So the first of theirs was called Feralia, which was a day when the Romans would spend commemorating the passing of their dead. And then the second was a day that they honored Pomona, which was the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. Her symbol was an apple, and it's believed that it's where the tradition of bobbing for apples came from. But then we fast forward just a little bit, Of course, we're still in Rome, but in 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honor of all the Christian martyrs. So that's where the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day was established. And then later, Pope Gregory III expanded it to include the Festival of All Saints Day. And then by the ninth century, the Christianity had spread through like all of the Celtic lands, and it began blending the Celtic traditions as a way of more easily converting the pagans. So this is Samhain, Yule, like all of, you know, Yule and Christmas, Samhain and Halloween, um, Ostara and Easter. You know, they started blending these together as a way to more easily convert the pagans because the church found that if they incorporated the familiar tradition pagans with Christian tradition, then the people they were converting would put up less of a fight because it was easier for them to just get used to it. It's kind of like the old saying of if you throw a frog in a hot boiling pot of water, he'll jump out. If you slowly turn up the heat, he'll stay in it. And then, of course, around 1080, and it's really widely believed that this was a move by the church to completely replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead into a church-sanctioned holiday. And they used most of the same traditions, such as the bonfires, parades, dressing in costumes, except the costumes went from ghosts and, and goblins to angels and devils. So it really was just kind of like a slow build of taking Celtic traditions. People would come in and conquer the land and add theirs. And then when Christianity swept the world, they just took it all over. You know, our Christmas trees are pagan in origin. Easter eggs are pagan in origin. So you can take pretty much all Christian celebrated holidays and tie them back to a pagan tradition. It was just a way of converting people and then erasing their history. Plus a lot of their history was oral, right? Yes. Most pagan cultures had an oral history. At some point it became, especially in the Celtic lands, it became illegal for them to even talk about their holidays or their traditions. I mean, all we have to do is look at what happened to the Scottish Highlanders in the 1700s. That was going on, you know, from the time Christianity rose up as a world religion, 
that's been going on since then. They would make it illegal to talk about their traditions or celebrate their traditions. When they did find a culture that had a written history, you know, they would go in and burn down their temples and their libraries and deface their statues. Freya is a really good example. She is one of the Norse goddesses of the whole pantheon. It's harder to find information about her than it is Odin and Thor because she was such a symbol of female empowerment and sex and magic and the church like suppressed women. So they didn't want women looking to Freya and being like, let's rise up against the church. So even if they had a written history, the church would just go in and destroy it. So I don't see huge headlines on our traditions being pagan do you feel there's still sort of a witch hunt feel around bringing out the truth i do i feel like it has gotten better even just from i started on my path when i was about 12 or 13 so i've over 20 years now i feel like it's gotten better in that 20 plus year span at the same time i'm always amazed at how far we still have to come. A lot of us pagans, we call it being in the broom closet. When you get that thing we think of like south of the Mason-Dixon line, it very much becomes anyone who's pagan, practices witchcraft, you don't openly talk about it. You don't openly wear the jewelry. You don't go around saying that you're pagan or that you believe in Odin or, you know, whatever your God is. You don't talk about that stuff because you very quickly become ostracized within the community. I experienced even when we lived in Oklahoma about 10 years ago, it got out in the neighborhood. I was pagan. An older lady in the neighborhood started telling the other parents not to let their kids play with my kids because I was witch. It's gotten a little better. But there is still a lot of closed-minded people out there with a lot of misconceptions. You know, which is not a bad word. We just need to take back the power and change the view on that word. There's strength in numbers. The way that it does now when I was a teenager, you know, now we can all kind of get together in Facebook groups or in Messenger and find people like us that believe those things. We have to go online to find it because a lot of times we can't find it within our own community. You know, we live in a in a country where there's a church on every corner, but if a church is raised of a different religion, they're ready to burn it down. You know, they don't want it within their communities. There is change. But I still feel like we have a long ways to go. What is your definition of a witch? I don't like labels, but for the sake of, you know, when people ask me what I believe, I, I very much am a witch. But my definition of that is someone who is very in tune with nature. It's very, it's very much a nature-oriented religion. And, you know, we're here to help and heal and bring about change in the world and the balance between nature you know because things become completely unbalanced and you know we're the care caretakers of this earth and as witches you know we should be very much focusing on healing the earth healing our community in any way we can you know it's not all harry potter and waving wands you know even though a lot of us wish it was consider myself a keeper of the old ways and i feel it's very much my job to pass that down to the newer generations because you know there is no one else left to do it. So it's our job to do that. And it's our job to heal and help those around us and educate those around us and help bring, you know, manifest good into our lives and peace and happiness. It's very much about healing and the balance with nature for me. When we were going over the repurposing of different holidays, do you think that still goes on today? like repurposing of things to convert people? I do really think that it still goes on because my, my oldest daughter is Christian. My ex-husband and who I'm with now are Christian. 
as well. And it does still very much go on within the church because with Google, you know, the education is there. Like you, you can find anything you want nowadays and you can confront them with, look, here is the proof that this was a pagan holiday. And, you know, they will stand there in the face of any argument and be like, no, this is Jesus's birthday. We celebrate. It's not Yule. It's Christmas. You know, you can tell them, well, you know, considering they followed the North Star and, you know, technically Jesus's birthday should have been in April, not at Christmas. They have the knowledge to change things, but they refuse to because it's easier to still convert people. You know, they're raising their kids. If they suddenly change the information they're giving their kids, then their kids might fall away from Christianity and follow something else. So it's easier to just keep false information to keep people following a faith is built on the persecution and religions of others. And so I do really feel like it still goes on today. And, you know, even missionaries, they will go to these other countries. I don't really... I don't really want to say cultural appropriation. I don't really feel like it's that, but they will go and they'll try to convert these people, but then they will bring back parts of their culture and incorporate it within the church or within their own homes. And just a way to make it easier to convert people. And I think more so than converting people, it's more about keeping people, the, the current followers. It's about keeping them within the religion. It makes me think of the Pachamama statues. That was like a big deal in the Vatican. It really was. And there is a lot of uh, people who believe that the things that they supposedly destroyed from these other cultures is actually still held within the Vatican, um, that they didn't destroy them. They kept them so that they could turn around and use them to convert more people of the pagan cultures or the heathens, as they like to call them. I really do still think that that goes on today. I mean, there was a lot um, a few years ago. Hobby Lobby was in trouble taking things from other cultures and then reselling it, which we all know is a big Christian company. I do think that because they've spent centuries using the culture of other people, they still do. Yeah, I think so too. Was there any guilt that you had to work through to start celebrating? It was more, I don't know that I would call it guilt. It was more the conditioning because I would become really confident in my path and what I believed in. I come from not just a fundamentalist Baptist house. My father was abusive and my mother was very much a narcissist. So when I was an adult, she would call me and tell me things like, you're going to hell and you're taking your kids with you. And because of the conditioning that I had received as a child from my mother, I would kind of revert back to questioning myself. Well, am I going to hell? You know, it was more about my kids. She would use them against me. Am I teaching my kids wrong? Are they going to go to hell because I taught them wrong? It was more fear, I think than guilt. I had to do a lot of work over a lot of years around that because, you know, that was her beliefs, not mine. We are all entitled to our own beliefs and our own faith and following her faith. You know, even within the Christian religion, you're, you're supposed to have this deep faith. But if I was following Christianity because my mom had instilled fear, that's not faith. That's simply following something based on fear. And when I realized that, it kind of clicked, oh, okay, this is okay. And, you know, I did a whole lot of work. The cognitive behavioral therapy helped me a lot. And just finding other like-minded people as I got older that had raised their kids in paganism or to be open-minded helped me a lot. It's really interesting that Christians are judging pagans 
yet in the Bible, you're not supposed to be so judgmental. And pagans, I feel, are less judgmental. You know, of course, there's judgmental people everywhere. But most pagans do believe in accepting everyone. As long as you're not harming someone, then your way of life is okay. Because it's what makes you happy. That's the important part. It's what makes you happy, what fulfills you, you know, your sole purpose. Christianity is very judgmental. And their own Bible says things like, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Christians will actually be the first one to throw a stone. They talk about being persecuted in the United States, yet they are usually the ones persecuting other people, whether it's religions or, you know, other ways of life. It's kind of a touchy topic with most pagans because most have experienced that judgment at some point. I myself had to block someone on Facebook the other day because in my posts about, I think it was my new master class, he kept posting and saying, there's only one true God. There's only one true God. And so even after 20 some years, I still face it myself sometimes. It's very interesting to see how much they judge others, but then want their own religious freedoms. You know, I have many loved ones who are Christian and I know many good people who are Christian in no way want to be like Christians are all bad. I very much feel like a religion that is steeped in the destruction of other cultures needs to take a step back and look at themselves and reevaluate. You know, they preach this religious freedom thing, but that means religious freedom for all. And that means not sending your missionaries to other cultures and then going in and destroying their way of life. Well, you worry about your kids going to school, right? And then like talking about it and being told they're wrong and dealing with it. I do have to deal with that because I still live in an extremely closed-minded community. It's It's a rural town in Kentucky. And it's very much the kind of place where if they could still burn people at the stake, I think they would. So it's very closed-minded. My kids are of varying religions. My middle son is very much pagan, and he's very vocal about it. He follows the Greek pantheon, and he will tell you Poseidon is his deity. And of course, I've raised my children to stand firm in the things you believe. But the problem becomes he goes to school, and he talks about you know what he believes in. We had a pretty bad bullying situation going on last year, and it was around religion. It becomes really difficult as a parent in these communities because You want your kids to stand firm in what they believe and you want them to tell the truth to some extent. You also have to stand there and tell them to protect yourself. You can't be as vocal about it. And it becomes really difficult and it's really hard to watch someone that's so deep in his faith in what he believes, even if it's, you know, it's paganism, be told, but there's still people who won't accept that. Be quiet. Don't tell everybody that. But then his question is, then why does everybody get to go to school and pray? Or why does everybody get to go to school and talk about God if I can't talk about mine? So it does become difficult as a parent in those situations. Yeah, it definitely is. I know this is like off topic, but do you feel like with patriarchy, it's not just women that suffered, but men have suffered? I do. I very much, of course, you know, I'm all about like, I laugh when I see things like hex the patriarchy. I do think men have suffered because they are, you know, of course, we've been persecuted in a different way than they have, but they suffer in the way that they have to suppress it. You know, they can't, if their wife is a pagan and she needs support, then he has to worry about how's this going to affect my job if they find out my wife is pagan or if they find out that I'm pagan. Modern witchcraft is very much looked at as a female-oriented religion. Truth be told, we truly believe in the balance of masculine and feminine. You have to have the god and the goddess. You know, I feel like they don't, a lot of men don't have a place they fit. And so then they kind of stick with Christianity just because it's comfortable. And what they know, even though they don't feel fulfilled there. 
witchcraft has become very closed off toward men with the patriarchy also you know of course there's this whole like they have to suppress their emotions and they have to be these big strong males all the time they suffer from the same things we do you know they're persecuted in different ways they suffer from the depression and the anxiety around raising their family or their jobs if they're not making three hundred thousand dollars a year and driving a brand new truck they're not a real man because the patriarchy says they're supposed to do these things so i do think they suffer i think it's just in a different way and we don't recognize it i love that you mentioned the emotional that's what i think about the most is that men have to suppress so much still and yet we have you know it's being too feminine when you're you're expressing so much i come from a background with domestic violence and i have spent a lot of years after my own healing working with domestic violence victims and we seem to forget or not recognize that men are victims of domestic violence as well it's a really good example of where they have to suppress that because as much as women who suffer from domestic violence, we feel we can't openly say that until after we've left the situation. They oftentimes don't know how to deal with it at all. In our society, well, a man can't be abused. A man is a man. Like this little woman abused this man. But there are many men out there who suffer from domestic violence and just have nowhere to turn because there's somehow less of a man if they admit that they've been abused. It is. It's very much so because there's a lot of heated debate that goes on within the witch community about whether men should be called witches or they should be called wizards and or warlock. There's a lot of stigma behind the word warlock, but there also is behind the word witch. Most pagans believe that the word witch is very gender neutral. Anyone can be a witch. You don't have to be a female to call yourself that. And for a long time, there was some stigma behind if you were a man, you had to be a priest you weren't a priestess with a lot more acceptance around alternative lifestyles. Now we are starting to see more men who are priestesses and some women who call themselves priests, which I think is really interesting and shows the growth within the pagan community more so than within the Christian community. Thank you so much, Celtic. This has been really interesting and educational. I'm so excited to share this podcast that we did together. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me do it. To find out more about Celtic Cherokee, you can find her right on Facebook as Celtic Cherokee. You can find her page Sirens Call with Celtic Cherokee or her group Sirens Call. Check out her class on November 1st, Spirit Guide Masterclass. It's part of her shamanic series. It is the second class in the series, but you don't have to take the first class to take the second class. In the class, you'll be focusing on finding your spirit guides. Also, if you already know your spirit guides, this class will help you strengthen that connection. She's taking people up to the day of the class. To find out more, find her on Facebook, Celtic Cherokee. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and to share.